0: Listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. In this episode, we're returning to a topic that we last discussed in episode 20 with Robin Marks and unpacking the intricacies and perceived complexities of the Quick and other similar new protocols. To help, we've invited Larry Peterson and Bruce Davey who, among their extensive lists of experience spanning the past 30 years, are co-authors of the renowned Computer Networks, a Systems Approach textbook, which is now in its fifth edition and open source. Bruce, Larry, thanks for joining us on Ping. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I came across your blog, Systems Approach, while researching our previous episode with Robin, where we talked about quick and perceived complexities with the new protocol. As we talked about in that episode, this perception is somewhat misplaced for the natural evolution of protocols, which is something that you seek to unpack through your aptly named blog. Bruce, for those not aware of what taking a systems approach is, can you give us a brief explanation and how this differs
1: from more traditional views of networking? So we first wrote a book together back in starting in 1995 called Computer Networks Systems Approach. And so... We've been applying that label to our work for 30-ish years. And the basic idea of the systems approach is you try to look at the performance of a complete system end-to-end and think about that as your guiding principle for how you do system design. And it's kind of distinct from an approach where you would divide something up into modules and optimize the behavior of every module. So for me, I'd say that's it's sort of the end-to-end focus on the system performance, focus on system behavior. That's what I think of a systems approach. It's a very sort of holistic view of things. And it's particularly important in networking. And we'll probably say more about this later, that we have this very well-known architecture for networking, which is the seven-layer model, where people have a bit of a tendency to say, well, I can just for the moment restrict my attention to one layer. And as long as I do a good job of that layer, I've done my work because... The other six layers are well known, and I've done my bit. And that's kind of the the approach we're trying to push against. We're like, yes, layering is super helpful for reasoning and for understanding, but it isn't actually the correct way to do system design. You need to think about everything from the application layer all the way down to the physical layer and the entire end to end path. And so that's why systems thinking, which comes across in all kinds of different computer systems and even outside of computing, Systems thinking is our philosophy, and then in networking, it very much plays out with things like looking across layer boundaries. Probably one of our favorite examples is congestion control, which takes place at many different layers. So that's a kind of long-winded answer, but that's where we think of a systems approach is this this holistic view of how to build systems that do what you want them to do.
2: Right. It's avoiding becoming myopic about one small corner of the system and optimizing it to death without taking into consideration what the overall system is trying to accomplish and whether that was the right place to be spending your time. You know, layering is a great tool. I mean, it is how we manage complexity. And there can be times that uh, it's exactly the right thing to do. Sometimes layering happens for non technical reasons. I mean, certainly in the networking marketplace. You divide and conquer the world based upon your business model versus mine, and there's a lot of examples out there where layers are imposed for technical and/or business reasons. But then over time, things change, and it's always good to keep an eye across what the end objective is and what the big picture is, and always feel the uh, the freedom to refactor. And in any system that grows complex over time, you're going to refactor it, and uh, that's going to redraw the layer, the boundaries, the module boundaries, but you can only do that when you understand holistically what you are trying to do.
0: Do you feel that those who started off with the internet and built it from the ground up have a greater understanding of the end to end concept that you talk about because they had to understand how each component worked. Whereas now there's a tendency to teach and become experts in specific jobs and components, which is maybe why many don't have a holistic
1: appreciation. It's a good theory actually. So, I'm not quite old enough to have been involved in the very early stages to the internet. By the time I came around, the overall architecture of TCP IP was well established. But, you know, certainly Larry and I both worked with the people who did that design and the idea that at some point they had to decide what layering they were going to use, right? So like, you know, whereas today I think a lot of people say, well, the layering's been handed down and if you don't follow it the way it is in your standard textbook, then you're sort of breaking the rules. Obviously back in the 60s and 70s when the internet was getting designed, the layering hadn't been you know even codified, like you know the idea of layering itself probably was you know an early idea, but exactly where the layer boundary sat was very much up for grabs and the way things were divided between TCP and IP is I think a really good example of where the people who were doing that like in Surf, Bob Kahn, David Clark, they were making trade-offs about what's the right place to put the layer boundary because nobody else had figured it out for them. And that absolutely meant they took this complete system view.
2: again, this slightly predates me as well is that uh, TCP IP were originally lumped together. Uh, The intent was that there was this one new module replacing the previous ARPANET version. And it was only after some consideration that they decided to break it into two. And and that was a perfectly rational thing to do because there was an argument that said, well, we'll, we'll," I mean, this is where the end-to-end argument ultimately originated is that we're going to get packets from point A to point B, and we may drop them, we may duplicate them. And then we're all, we, there are many different things that we could do on top of that to rectify that and to give us an end-to-end protocol. And so let's draw a line there, and TCP will be our first example. turned out to be a pretty dominant example evolving over time, but I think the, the rationale for putting a, a breakpoint there is, is, is a good one.
0: And you feel that even though this layering is superficial and was developed as a learning mechanism, it has become ingrained in the culture and way we view the internet, even though the internet is very different from what it used to be. In some ways, that's why you see these protocols that bridged several layers
1: like QUIC, a protocol that you've written quite a bit about on your blog, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, I first was writing about QUIC because we were doing... I think we were doing an update to our textbook, and we were also working on a new book on congestion control. So both of those caused me to go and look at Quick, and it's a fairly complicated design. You know, the three RFCs that define Quick are a few hundred pages. And what I realized was that Quick was a response to some layering decisions that were made in the '90s that turned out to be not really that good, and We, I think we're both around when HTTP 1.0 was getting defined and was actually just probably stands out in my mind as one of the worst layering decisions that I've seen in terms of how much as the design of HTTP was brilliant and has done wonderful things for the world. It was a really unfortunate uh, decision to say, well, TCP gives me a reliable byte stream. I'm going to build a protocol over that that does request response. And every time I need to send a new request, I'll just open a new TCP connection because, hey, I can trust my TCP connection. We'll get the packets there or the bits or whatever I'm, I'm sending through my you know, request response protocol. And so that 1.0 design had, had a terrible performance and was fairly quickly replaced by 1.1. And then we got to a 2.0 and then really over the last maybe 10 years or so that people started saying, yeah, but you know, now that we've got security in there as well, it's still pretty bad from a performance point of view. And you know, the number of round trips just to simply say, could I have a page please? Right. It's like open the TCP connection exchange the certificates, get the keys. Oh, now I can ask for the page. And so that was like all the layers were doing their job perfectly well. You had a layer to get packets delivered reliably. You had a layer to do certificate exchange and then another layer to ask for pages or or objects or whatever. And rethinking that is like, well, all these things need to happen, but they don't need to be done in three separate layers. That's what gave us quick. And so for me, it was a perfect example of like, well, we really understand the problem well now, right? We've had... TLS, you know, transport layer security, we've had that for a couple of decades. We've had HTTP for more than two, well, actually more than three decades now. And so let's rethink the architecture for how we build this system, whose job is to securely deliver pages across the internet, looking through all of those layers and, and refactoring it. And so you know, that's why it takes however many hundreds of pages to describe quick is because it's doing all, all the things of those three layers and it's doing it in a holistic way that produces dramatically better performance.
2: This has been a uh, sore spot, sore spot in grind. I'm not sure what the right metaphor is for me for, for a number of years. That if there was one th- aspect of the internet architecture and how it evolved, particularly how it evolved over time and the way it started makes complete sense. But how it has evolved is how reluctant the internet has been to say, you know what, remote procedure call is a really, really powerful tool for building distributed systems. We really ought to have an RPC mechanism. Back in the Eighties, the operating system slash local area network distributed systems group of uh, researchers got going, and they immediately set out and built a whole bunch of different RPC mechanisms, sort of in parallel to all the internet work that was going on. And meanwhile, the internet reinvented RPC about six different times. I mean, SMTP has an RPC at the core of it. SMTP has it. SNMP, I forget who, which. All I've said here, and HTTP, certainly another example. We've just reinvented RPC over and over. And how quick maybe finally we will have an RPC mechanism. I um, mean, we've we've constructed one out of TCP and everything that we've layered on top of it. But I mean, that's an example of a really powerful abstraction that we just have taken a long time to get right in the internet. Sorry, I'll get back off my
1: soapbox now. <laughs> it's funny you say that because you know, in I think it was the first edition of our textbook, in our transport protocol chapter, we had effectively three major sections. We had a UDP section, which is like you know, unreliable datagram delivery is the easiest thing to explain. So we did that first. And then we had the TCP section, which is what everybody thinks of when they think of transport protocols. And then we had an RPC section. And I reckon we were probably the only networking textbook to do that. And this was basically because, you know, this has been Larry's, uh, you know, soapbox forever. But it's it's like it was exactly right, right? There, there should be an RPC section in your transport protocol chapter of a of textbook.
0: So do you feel that those who developed Quick sought to take a systems approach, given it encompasses UDP, TLS and other features that were previously separate? And because it is so packed with features, this is why the RFCs are so lengthy and there is so much perceived complexity associated with it.
1: Yes, I, I think that's I think that's right. I, I I do think it's a good piece of system design. And you know, I think it's it's you know it, it is a decade's worth of work too, right, to, to get to where we are with with QUIC with people thinking about all the different op- opportunities that were to optimize and to get rid of all those extra round trip times so that you could do things like get the you know get the certificates exchanged while you were setting up the the reliable delivery. Um, there's another kind of interesting thing about QUIC too, which is the need to live in the world we live in as opposed to some hypothetical other one where you don't have metal boxes. And so like the fact that they say, well, we just got to use UDP because there's no other way we're going to get through all the middle boxes out there. And so we're effectively going to layer our reliable transport on top of UDP, which is, again, it's a classic example of the sort of thing people would say. It's a layer violation. You can't run a transport on top of a transport. It's like, well, that's a lot of nonsense, right? Of course, you can put layers on top of layers as much as you want. And in this case, the rationale for it's spot on, right? It's like we need UDP to get through middle boxes. That's pretty much all it's doing for us. And then we need all the reliability. So we're going to build all the things that were in TCP, but we put them into this new protocol. And all the things we've learned about TCP over the last 30 plus years, things like, oh, it's actually nice to have packet numbers. So you know, some of the things that got there are lessons from, from TCP. I mean, the whole history of TCP congestion control is captured in maybe half a dozen different RFCs. So let's Get all of that. So it is complex, but it's complex because it's doing all these things that have to be done, and it is absolutely a good example of what's the problem we want to solve? We want to do a good job of all the things that need to happen in modern web, web applications, which means security, reliability, performance all have to be taken care of, and dealing with middle boxes has to be taken care of. All those things show up in the in the protocol design. That takes a few hundred pages to explain that. You touched on
0: security and reliability, Bruce, which along with scalability, availability and usability make up the illies that the network operators often measure the performance by. However, in a recent post by yourself, Larry, you noted another illie that is starting to gain attention, which is observability. We touched on this in our discussion with Robin in a previous episode on complexity, but can you explain what it is, why it is important and how it is more than just monitoring?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, for me, observability only came into my conscience fairly recently. You know, these other properties of systems, reliability, scalability, and so on, those have been around for a long time, and I hadn't actually heard the word observability until we were trying to finish up one of our books on operating edge clouds, and I started stumbling over it everywhere as I as I was googling and. What was really confusing to me was how observability was different than monitoring, and it was claimed as this whole other thing, and sort of stood back from that a little bit and kind of came to the conclusion that observability is the umbrella thing that we're after. It's the property of the system. Monitoring, maybe you could also call that collecting metrics, is is one aspect of observability. So it's not an either or. To be able to observe a system means that you can see information about its behavior so you can adapt and control it and orchestrate it and so on. So you need metrics. You're probably going to need logs. And when things go really bad, you might need some tracing. And so I think the tracing is, to some extent, a little bit of the newer thing here. Everyone understands, well, we've been writing system logs forever. We've been trying to collect statistics whenever we can. And and as you point out, it is often a post-facto thing that you do to your system to go collect those statistics and those metrics. But I really like the way that observability captures the higher-order property that a system should have. By the way, it dovetails very nicely with another property that you don't hear quite as often as reliability and scalability, which is manageability or operability. You can't operate a system or you can't manage it until you have insight or observations into its behavior. You can sort of view it as an aspect of the system being manageable, which is then another one of the itties. Which having spent most of my career in the academic world, I am very keenly aware how that gets short shifted that, well, I demonstrated my function and I can even measure it. And I can tell you what a wonderful idea this is. I don't know the first thing about whether it's going to be manageable as an actual operational system. And I don't know anything about the steps involved in making it an operational system. That's, I think, one of the big lessons that I take away from a little bit of experience crossing the boundary between the academic world and industry in the last few years is uh, having systems that are manageable is is paramount and as you know circling back observability is a critical factor in that.
0: Bruce you've also been looking into the application of observability particularly service meshes.
1: Yeah I've been kind of following service meshes quite closely for a few years now and I really think they're a fascinating example of trying to apply some of the ideas from the networking world into the application world. And so one of the last presentations I did when I was still working at VMware was around service meshes in the context of virtual networks. And one of the things that I realized is that in one of the early networking talks that that I remember from David Clark he talked about how you needed to think about how applications are layered. So again, my sort of pet story about layering and that there are certain things where really only the application knows what's going on. So there was this paper on application layer framing. And that is one of the things that I think comes up in Service Mesh is that there's certain things that are really only intelligible to the application, particularly because today most modern applications are encrypting the messages before they or as they send them to the peers, there's you know, a lot of communication over HTTPS. So the only time when a visible application message shows up is when the application gets it out of the encryption engine. And so service meshes have to sit right at that spot where you've got the unencrypted message, so that they can do something useful. And and so for me, that was one of the really interesting things about service meshes was this need to be really close to the application, kind of bringing back that memory of application layer framing from, I think that's a paper from the early 90s. And then the other aspect of it being that you need a system or a platform rather than just giving a piece of library code to every programmer. Because, you know, one simple way to make sure that everybody can build observability into their code is to say, well, hey, here's a here's a bunch of library functions. Make sure you use them. I and mean, you can see how well that would go, right? <laughs> you know, just, just trust every developer to do the right thing. That'll give you an observable system. So the nice thing about service meshes is it's still a platform, right? You can have a platform team that runs the service mesh and they build these little proxies that sit in exactly the right spot to get visibility into the application, but not actually making it the developer's responsibility to do everything. Of course, service meshes do a lot more than observability, but that's a really good use case for them. So anyway, that's kind of the long story of why I got so excited about service meshes is because it touches on things that I've learned about 30 years ago, but brings them into a modern context. And again, it's this tricky kind of system design issue that even takes account of things like, well, what would be the downside of letting the developer do this? Well, if your goal is to have a manageable system, depending on the good behavior of developers isn't isn't the way to get there. Uh, And so that may be an extreme example of system design where you're actually thinking about the human component of the system, which includes the application developers.
2: You've nailed it there. I think there is no rocket science here. (laughs) You instrument your code, as a developer, I mean it's best practice, and you write your log messages. And there's plenty of library support out there, and there's plenty of open source tools, so you're not starting from scratch. And as Bruce pointed out, of course, though you are depending upon the developer doing the right thing, but even if you depended on the developer, whether it's service mesh or you're depending on the developer, I think the really challenging problem that we keep beating on over and over and over, and we just have never really quite gotten it right, is deciding what parameters or metrics we want to measure what are the important things that we want to observe and if you go back to the history of observing networks uh, they always get bogged down in, in the definition of the schema for the things that i'm observing all right i can't instrument my code until i know what it is i need to re- i want to report or what's useful to report well what am i going to report well i'll go look at snmp and it says well we're just a reporting transfer protocol. What you really needed was to go look at the MIB. And now you spend years and years fleshing out MIBs. And my vendor's MIB is different than your vendor's MIB. And so we really haven't coalesced around a uniform set of things to be reported. We're just repeating that now. Uh, we've got new tools for extracting metrics out of microservices. But we just got to agree as to what, what the right things to extract. Now... I sort of view this as today's version of how to define a MIB question. There are efforts to try to do that, like any standardization or coalescing uh, efforts. Not sure where the right venue for that would be, but uh, like any effort like that, it's going to be a tension between coming to an agreement on useful general metrics and taking care of all the one-offs of every vendor's uh, unique product. Uh, and, and that's why that one always gets stuck.
0: The trials of standardisation is something we've talked about several times on this show, including a recent episode with Anand Shah, in which we discussed how content providers, service providers and applications all have their own perspective along a route, and because of this, they don't use the same metrics. So observability does seem to have merit when it comes to helping all these different actors to take a step back and look at the network holistically, particularly when it comes to understanding quality of experience. Bruce, do you think Quick has sought to adopt this holistic approach, or is it still too early to tell?
1: Yeah, I guess I'd say it's probably too early to tell how how well Quick is going to play out. I mean, I think to be fair, like there have been deployments of Quick for a while now. It goes back way beyond the standardization efforts when there was you know, Google driving the early efforts along with Speedy, and so I think we've got we've got some experience that Quick you know, delivers real benefits. I think the question I think you're trying to get at there is when we take the step back, we build systems that are observable and manageable and where we can troubleshoot problems. I think we've still got a way to go there. I mean, one point I thought was maybe worth highlighting in this whole discussion about observability is historically, networking gear gave you a certain set of metrics that were pretty much packet counts. And that was kind of the limit of what you could get. And with the rise of P4 and programmable networking hardware over the last half dozen years, we've seen a big effort around in-band network telemetry, which is really trying to change the way we think about monitoring what's going on inside the network. There's an interesting story here about how the networking world has probably been one of the worst in terms of observability. And with something like in-band network telemetry, it's starting to catch up and it relates to something Larry said about, well, every vendor had a different set of MIBs. So you only, you know, you couldn't even know reliably what things you were going to get out of your network. But the nice thing with in-band network telemetry or with P4 programmable hardware more generally is actually the user of the network can customize what they get out of it. So if there's some particular metric that you want, well, You you can ideally program the hardware to deliver that metric, even if the vendor didn't necessarily put it there in the first place. Now, there's a whole set of questions about how many people are competent to program their own networks, which is probably still a very small subset of the total networking population. But at least this idea that your networking hardware is becoming more customizable. And so whereas monitoring a piece of application code, you could always go and insert an extra piece of code couldn't go and insert an extra piece of code into the network. But now, effectively, we can start doing that because we're getting more programmable hardware. And there's a long way for that to run, but at least we're making steps in that direction.
2: Yeah, and sort of tying a couple of threads together, this is, you know, we're now talking a little bit about software-defined networking. And certainly, in-band network telemetry down in the data plane, you're able, you know, the ability to program and change On the fly, you can can decide to zoom in on something. You can't necessarily have watched the level of detail across all flows, but you have the ability to say, I want you to now give me more information about this flow. So that dynamic aspect is a good one. But sort of stepping back again, (laughs) as as we're doing often here, uh, this is very much like the service mesh model in the sense that one of the things SDN brings to the table is that you have a centralized built-in collection Point, if you will, and a place to observe the network and control the network that's a little bit more central. And that's very much like the model of, of service meshes. I instrument at the point packets are flowing between microservices. I report that into a central place, and now I have the ability to look across multiple levels, multiple granularities, multiple devices, and centrally do the analysis on all of that data. I think in bandnet work telemetry Feeding into SDN is very much like what service measures are making possible.
0: I'm glad you brought up SDN, Larry. Uh, from my rather basic understanding, SDNs are being pitched as a way of making
1: networking a lot less complex. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think of the classic Scott Schenker talk, which was probably the one that sold me on SDN in 2011. And a few months later, I went to go work for Nasira to build an SDN system. So the idea was that networking people are famous for dealing with complexity. And Scott asked, asked people in the audience, how many of you drive manual transmission? And you know, a lot of hands went up and he said, yeah, you're yeah, yeah, networking people. So basically people who love dealing with complexity. And what the SDN approach really did was to say, if we're going to separate out the control plane from the data plane and make it possible for people to innovate in the control plane, we need to not have people thinking about... How did these 10 different boxes interact with each other to do something in the way that, you know, trying to reason about what BGP is going to do is, you know, famously hard problem. What, what SDN has is said, you don't reason about all the little boxes individually. You reason about the overall network. And then you say, oh, what I really need is a network where this endpoint can talk to this endpoint on this port or something like that. And you specify that behavior into the SDN controller. And then the SDN controller goes and figures out how to push that intent into a set of distributed data plane devices. So, for me, this thing that was really critical was SDN wasn't just about separating the control plane from the data plane, but it was saying you can have a central point of control where you can reason about the whole network and request network wide behaviors. As opposed to the more traditional networking view, where you know you configure OSPF over here and you configure BGP over here, and if you're an absolute wizard, your concatenation of all of those behaviors does the thing you wanted. But you know, as, as frequently happens, you actually don't know what's going to happen across that complex distributed system, and something weird happens. And so, going to centralized control was the key innovation. And guess I have to say, it was a, a huge shift in thinking for the networking community. Because honestly, at this point, I've been doing networking for. 25, maybe going on 30 years ago when I heard that talk. And I was like, wow, everything I've been told is a lie. I was always told that everything had to be fully distributed. You can't centralize in networks. And the idea that, well, there are these technologies that enable us to build centralized controllers, which are scalable, reliable, not a single point of failure, and yet give you this ability to reason about the network on a network-wide basis. like That was it was just mind-blowing. And to me, uh, that was indeed a huge part of what we were doing with SDN was tackling the complexity that was kind of inherent to this old way of, of doing networking.
2: Yeah, I mean, to implement an SDN based system is still extremely complex thing to do. And I think people look at that and go, well, well you haven't made anything simpler here, but it's, it's entirely about how you manage that complexity. This is a classic example of here's a platform This platform's a little tricky to get right, but once I get it right, then I freed you up to put your policies and your applications and whatnot on top of it. But I have now compartmentalized and managed that little bit of complexity for you, and uh, you're free to go on your way. Now, you go inside of that box, and it, it is not an easy thing to get that right. And it's still the case that the more controlled and homogeneous your world is, for example, you are implementing a data center, it's a much easier thing to do than if you're trying to replicate your enterprise. But I think we've learned or the cloud world has shown us a lot about how we can do a better job of managing the network more broadly. And SDN is actually exactly an example of that. A lot of that work Took off inside of the the hyperscalers, and we're only now trying to understanding how to apply it to access networks and enterprises.
0: You've raised a point there, Larry, similar to one raised by Robin in our previous episode, which is it's natural to perceive something as complex if you haven't had any experience with it. But once you've taken the time to understand it and practice it, it makes a lot of sense. And like Bruce's epiphany with SDNs, helps make your job a whole lot less complex. Bruce. What's your advice when approaching something like QUIC for the first time?
1: Well, I mean, I think to be fair, like reading an RFC can be a pretty tough way to understand anything. And you know, honestly, a lot of what we try to do in our primary occupation these days is writing books. And so we're often trying to make the RFCs a bit more comprehensible to people. So, you know, I'll say, don't read the Quick RFCs. Start off by reading one of our books and you, you know, let's get the five-page introduction to QUIC. And then maybe go to the RFC if there's a detail you need. And, uh, you know, so we, we really do try to, to make things comprehensible. And so we do really try to help people understand what's the big picture. David Clark wrote a very nice preface for our first book where he talked about how we were helping people understand this sort of perspective on what's important as opposed to just reciting all the RFCs. For us, the book we always try not to be is the sort of the encyclopedia of networking. We don't want to be that. We want to be the one that says, here's the perspective of what's important. So learning these things is hard, but please don't just read the RSC as the, as the first line of defense to learn something. I also think people do have a certain resistance to change. And so the way networks were done for 30 plus years was a very particular way of doing things with everything very, very distributed and very complex protocols running on individual boxes and BGP, I think being the famously most complex one. For some people, having built the expertise to be able to make BGP do what you want is an incredibly valuable thing to have learned. And there's a strong investment in not having to move to something new. Because like, hey, I won't be the expert anymore if we move away from doing things the way it's been done for the last 30 years. I was not one of those people. I was STN and I thought this is such a better way of doing things if we can make it work. And fortunately I got a chance to work on that in Assyra where we tackled a very narrow slice of the overall networking problem, which was how to do networking for virtual machines. And that turned out to be a really good place to tackle networking using these different tools. And there was a ton of complexity embedded embedded in our product, as as Larry kind of alluded to. Just sort of fun story that I, I remember was Zookeeper was part of our original network virtualization product. And I think i can safely say ZooKeeper is not something you necessarily want to inflict on a customer to say, as long as you can keep ZooKeeper running reliably, the product will be just fine. That was the greatest pain point for us in terms of keeping customers on, you know, up and running was giving them this fairly complex distributed system, which you could screw up quite seriously if you changed its configuration the wrong way. It's like, good news, you don't have to do BGP. Bad news, <laughs> you have to do ZooKeeper. So that was actually a real challenge for us as we made a more mature product was like how do we isolate the customer from that sort of complexity that's inherent in distributed systems and again i think a lot of this is the complexity is inherent how do you build the systems in such a way that the customer or the user doesn't have to be exposed to all that complexity
2: conservation of complexity you can move it around and you can break it into little chunks but you can't actually eliminate complexity you know, in thinking about learning about networks and, and how we've been sort of on the other side of that, been teaching and writing about networks for a long time, you have to give students a framework to think about things. And whether it was the seven-layer architecture or whatever, there was a very clear layered architecture that was kind of the framework, and then you filled in the pieces, and that's how one or two generations of people have learned about networking. I really do think we are now at a point that we need to figure out a different way to talk about and teach networking. I don't know exactly what it is, but I think maybe going back to the notion of some of these technologies matured in the cloud and in the data center and then have seeped out from there, that that might be the right way to approach it. You start with these iddies that we were talking about. I mean, a network's a system, all right? We're going to build a system and we want it to be scalable, we want it to be reliable, we want it to be manageable and observable and so on. And if you start from that perspective and and maybe start borrowing the notion that the cloud has built some pretty powerful, scalable systems. Can we apply those notions and those ideas to a network? Which is a little bit weird because we needed a network to build the cloud, but now that we have the cloud, I think we need it to to help us figure out how to make our networks more manageable. If you view the network, not as a separate standalone thing, but as part of the cloud being controlled in the same way and managed, observed, and reliable and scalable and all the itties in the same way as the cloud, then it really does help you think about and manage that complexity. Uh, just one, one little note a uh, colleague that I've done work with for many, many years, uh, Timothy Roscoe, when SDN was first starting, he and I had worked together on, on Plano Lab many, many years ago. And his comment to me just stuck with me, which is, so finally we're gonna recast networking as a distributed system problem. That was in essence, what SDN was about. It was turning a networking problem into a distributed systems problem. And I think that really has
1: helped, it has the potential to help make it a much more manageable pile of complexity. I mean, it's interesting you know, when I was at MIT, I, I taught or co-taught the graduate networking class and uh, the undergraduates didn't take a specific networking class, they took a systems class and networking was part of systems. And so, you know, that's a pretty famous class at MIT. And so people learn about system design and networking comes along as part of that. And so I thought that was really interesting because that's exactly what what Larry was just describing is you think about networking as part of a bigger system, not just it's, it's networking and we teach it in this very special way with its own arcana of layers and so on.
2: Yeah, and the more it's the case, and it is becoming the case, the hardware at the base of that was not a magic box from Cisco or wherever, but the, the hardware that you started with was a commodity thing that, just like a commodity x86, it's now a uh, bare metal switch with a, uh, a switching chip in it. And here's you know here's what that chip does. Here's its pipeline. And you sort of take it from there. There's no, there's no magic. The more it starts to look like commodity
0: hardware at the bottom, and it's softer all the way up from there. As you noted, Larry, it's interesting that the internet has born and enabled all these products, particularly the cloud. And now the cloud is teaching us how to redesign the internet to make it more scalable and usable. There are parallels, you feel, in how we develop our utility services. And in many ways, the network behind the internet has become a utility. Like, for example, cities like London and Paris grew before we developed the appropriate sewerage infrastructure to fully accommodate them. And through this retrospective designing process, which is a lot different from the medieval concept of sewerage, our sanitary systems can now properly meet their population's use. What I'm getting at, I guess, is that original designs of the internet, such as the end-to-end approach, shouldn't be considered as the only way to develop a network when the use of the internet has drastically changed from its
1: initial concept. I was just going to go there, actually. The end-to-end one is something we've talked about quite a bit because it's very rare these days that you actually make an end-to-end connection, right? Like, not in the sense like you know, here's the three of us on a on a call at the moment. Do you reckon there's a connection from my computer to your computer? I seriously doubt it, right? There's a connection from my computer to something in the cloud that's doing the recording, and you're connected to a other perhaps different part of the cloud to do your local recording. And so what's TCP these days? It's the thing that gets the packets from your computer to whatever cloud service the content is coming from or being stored in. And so they have this whole idea that the end-to-end connection is everything. Well, it's still important, but the end is not what you think it is. The end is almost certainly some point inside the cloud. And I was, I was trying to debug a friend's television streaming service yesterday and he's like, I don't understand why. Like, I can go from one movie to the next, and it, suddenly it works, and then it doesn't. And it's like, well, probably hitting two different nodes in the cloud, depending on which movie you selected. So you're getting two different end-to-end connections based on your choice of movie, and uh, maybe one was in the cache and one wasn't. You know. <laughs> so um, my friend was an engineer, but anyway, it was he hadn't thought about the fact that he, you know, he said it's all coming from the same TV network. It's like, yes, but trust me, it's not coming from the same servers. We worshipped the end-to-end argument as networking people, right? And I think. Larry and I have written about it a lot, but it's just important to realise the ends are not where you necessarily first think of them.
0: I think this adds further evidence to this misconception of complexity among new protocols, which are trying not to look through traditional lenses, but focusing on what the challenge and use case is today. What's pleasing in the case of QUIC is that it's been a concerted approach that has taken a holistic view of the problem associated with TCP and HTTP2.
1: I think also, you know, the IETF is a place where I spent a lot of years and it's tough to get consensus on things when there's so many different stakeholders and it's not a smooth process. It's not the same as it was 30 years ago when there was, you know, less than hundred people going to IETF meetings. So I give full credit to the quick team for actually getting consensus around such a, it's a big set of issues that have to be resolved. So I didn't love every minute I spent at the IETF, let's say, but I think the quick team actually really deserves some credit for getting it done. Before we wrap this up,
0: I wanted to return to a point you made earlier, Bruce, about making complex things more comprehensible. What tips can you give to people out there to help their teams understand these complex things in a comprehensive and practical manner?
1: I think the first piece of advice that I always give to people, if you're trying to help someone else understand something complex Is you have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't already know all the things that you know. I mean, that's kind of the way I approach writing. I try to teleport myself back to the point in time where I didn't already have all the knowledge I have now, and like, how did I come to understand that thing? And and sort of try to explain it. You're guaranteed to lose people if you if you assume they they know too much. So you know, I think that's we often just maybe assume that a little bit less knowledge on the part of our readers to make sure we bring them on the journey with us. I think the key for understanding complex networking topics is to have good abstractions. And I think that's a lot of what we try to do in our books and our blogs is to help people figure out like what are the right abstractions. And so again, you know, we've got this set of abstractions handed to us from the 7 layer model and It's one set of abstractions, but as we've said many times today, not always the correct set of abstractions. And so trying to come up with a better abstraction is, is I think, the right thing. Larry's point about RPC is, I think, a good example. Like RPC is an abstraction. Like what is RPC? It's I need to send a message somewhere, have something execute, and then come back with an answer. So that's an abstraction, and that's a very different abstraction than reliable message delivery. And so you need to have good abstractions, and that is, I think, a lot of what we try to do. And sometimes your protocols will accurately capture the abstractions of what you need. Like I'm struggling to kind of capture what is it exactly that Quick does. I think to me, what Quick does is it reliably and securely transfers requests and responses between clients and servers pretty much rpc right and then you know if if that's your abstraction then everything else kind of follows from that one of the three main rfcs on the quick encyclopedia is the tls piece so that's how you get the security another one is the congestion control piece so that's how you get all the things that are built into tcp but in this new protocol so anyway i think that's the way to think about it is you top level abstraction you know in this example it's effectively rpc and then underneath that, you've got sub abstractions. How do I get security? How do I get reliability? How do I get congestion control? Then if you break it down, but that's not breaking it down by layer, right? That's breaking it down by function. And I think that's the key thing. There's actually a very nice picture in, I think it's probably the first quick RFC, that's a, their layering diagram. And it's a bit of a dog's breakfast in a sense because it doesn't have like nice clean layers. It's got like boxes that sit on top of layers because it's not a simple layer diagram just because of the way they've tackled the problem to avoid things like seven round trip times to get your first message through. I actually love that diagram because it shows they thought very carefully about the correct modularity and realized that a nice smooth set of layers wasn't the right one. So anyway, short answer is get the right abstractions. Here's a slightly different answer. It'd be a
2: whole lot easier to explain systems if we just built better systems. And to tie this together a little bit, until you can describe your system clearly and cleanly, you're not done designing it yet. And by describing it, I mean something a little bit more than saying, here's the API to it, because it could have had 18 parameters. And that didn't help me understand the abstractions in it at all. Every time I've seen a system, and I, you know, someone's telling me about their design, and you start asking them questions, and then they realize, "Well, I mean, I need to go think about that." And from my point of view, I enjoy trying to describe something in these in the books we write because it's it's reducing something to the point that it's describable. And sometimes you have to tell little tiny lies when you're describing real systems, but that's okay because I've helped you understand it, and then go read the footnote. There's a little rat's nest over here, but. And sort of turning, this isn't about learning about systems, this is about building systems. Until you can describe the system you built clearly, you're, you're just not done defining it. And if we just would attach that itty, uh, the uh to the set of itties, I think we could make a little bit more progress.
0: It really reminds me of high school maths classes where I may have solved an equation, but unless I've shown my workings, I didn't get the answer right. While it was frustrating at the time, I can understand now that what they wanted us to try to do was explain the process so that someone else could come up with the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah, very much the same. Thank you so much again for joining us here on Ping, Larry and David. It's been a really enlightening discussion with plenty more scope to unpack given that complexity breeds complexity, but the more we discuss it and break it down into its different facets the more comprehensive it can be. So I appreciate you both taking the time to speak to us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Oh, it's been super interesting. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Also, if you enjoyed listening to Bruce and Larry, please subscribe to their blog, Systems Approach. We'll put a link in the description below. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And check out the new measurement and APNIC mailing list to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, and or to seek feedback from the community on your research and measurement project. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.